Uh, Lord, uh, we thank you that we have redemption in Jesus Christ, that we have a hope. And we thank you that the truth of your word uh, reminds us that we have a deliverer. And I pray that as we um, serve you and proclaim your word, that you would be honored and glorified in our lives and you would help us understand better how uh, to, to live for you and to be the Christians that you want us to be, the servants of Jesus that you want us to be. And I pray it all in your name. Amen. We are launching this evening into the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, a case study of redemption. And we're going to look tonight at Ruth chapter 1 in the first five verses. So if you go ahead and turn in your Bibles there or find that passage of Scripture, I'll read it here in just a moment. Uh, this is a short book. I want to give you, by way of introduction, some framework to understand uh, when it was written, why it was written, some of the things that were going on around that time. Uh, we're not told who the author of the book of Ruth is. Uh, Jewish tradition thought that it was the prophet Samuel. The writer, obviously, is a very gifted uh, storyteller, and some have referred to the book of Ruth as the most beautiful short story that was ever written. Uh, the date of the book would be somewhere around 1150 or 1160 B.C. Uh, to maybe 1100 uh, B.C. in the latter part of the time of the judges. The purpose of the writing uh, reveals that the days were dark. And the reason that the days were dark was because of the sin and the apostasy, the rebellion of the Israelites. And God brought to them uh, calamity because of their rebellion against him. Ruth primarily is written from Naomi's point of view with events relating back to her. Uh, the opening of the book tells of a time of famine uh, when the family went out of the land and went to the neighboring Moab, the nation of Moab. Uh, Naomi eventually returned with Ruth because the circumstances had improved. And it tells the story of the death of Naomi's husband as well as her sons. It tells the story of her daughters-in-law, uh, the return that they made back uh, to Bethlehem. And then also as a centerpiece of the entire message is Boaz, this man who's known as the kinsman redeemer. And we'll get to that theme as we get a little bit further into the book. Somebody compared Naomi to a female Job who lost it all. She lost her home, her husband, her children, even her livelihood. Uh, she became poor and widowed and even found herself in the midst of devastating grief. But God, in his mercy, would place Ruth in Naomi's path. Ruth was the embodiment of loyalty and love. Uh, we know her vow of loyalty to her mother-in-law because it's often used in wedding ceremonies, even though it's not actually a statement about marriage. It's more a statement about her commitment uh, to her mother-in-law. And we also find this thread of grace and that God... Uh, brought Ruth into his chosen people and honored her with a continuing role in the family line, leading up ultimately uh, to the coming of the Messiah. I believe that Ruth reflected 
in her heart and her actions the love of God. Boaz's loyalty to Naomi's husband reflected the faithfulness of God. And then Naomi's plan for Ruth's future also represented a selfless and a giving love. Now here are two contrasting principles that we find over and again in the Bible. Obedience to God brings blessing. Disobedience to God brings consequences. We belong to a loving, faithful, capable God who has never failed his children, uh, and he's never failed to love and to care for us. And the theme that rises out of these short chapters, these verses here, is the theme of redemption and the kinsman redeemer, as I mentioned. The kinsman redeemer, of course, being a male relative who, according to uh, various laws of the Pentateuch, had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble or in danger or in need. And the Hebrew term designates one who delivers or rescues or redeems people or property. And that's going to be central to the story as we get a little bit further into it. So let's begin reading in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. Uh, They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Verse 3, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. This is a story of love that turns to a story of loss and misery, but turns again to a story of joy. With only 85 verses, we find an entire range of emotions, a range of human emotions with the entire time, the backdrop being God working behind the scenes. And what I want to speak to you on tonight for these few minutes that we have together is the subject of the darkness of trouble and what we can learn from it. Certainly in this story, they faced the darkness of trouble. They were facing the circumstances of cultural relativism that was a force that was pushing people away from God to dishonor God and was bringing consequences to them. There was the force of uh, the immorality and the idolatry in the land, uh, the individualism that had risen up rather than people obeying God. They also faced natural forces in the form of a famine certainly beyond their control. And then they faced personal forces 
from their own decisions, things that they decided to do in response to the situation at hand. And the first thought I want to share with you this evening is that the darkness of trouble comes unexpectedly. The darkness of trouble comes unexpectedly. In verse 1, it says, During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. So we're introduced to the situation uh, kind of abruptly with a little bit of a historic background. And it's just dropped on us that there was a famine in the land. Now, this story took place after uh, Joshua's death, uh, certainly. And as I noted, the account uh, would have been in the closing days of the judges. The period of the judges was about 400 years, and it was ruled by judges or deliverers that God raised up in order to lead the people. If you've ever studied the book of Judges, you'll know that there are these repeated cycles of obedience and then disobedience and then judgment and suffering, desperation, and return. Things will get a little better and they'd go right back into that same cycle again. And these four centuries that are recorded in the book of Judges are an accounting of that. The book of Ruth is a message of hope. And the perspective really focuses in on a narrow story of one family in a small town and a threshing floor in contrast to that broader narrative that we find in the judges. But anytime that we find a small story, so to speak, we also need to understand the broader context and it'll help us have a better grasp on what's going on. Judges 21 and verse 25 says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. These judges served as military leaders in a time of crisis. They were local rulers really administering uh, political and legal justice. Names like Gideon and Samson and Deborah. These are familiar names and familiar stories to us uh, from the Old Testament. Now, you might remember that Moses warned long before this that if the people refused to obey the Lord, the Lord would bring a curse to the land. Deuteronomy 28 and verse 24 says, the Lord will turn the rain of your land into falling dust. It would descend on you from the sky until you are destroyed. God had commanded the Israelites under Joshua's leadership to purge the land of the idolatry that they found. And their failure to do so ended up putting them in a position where the temptation of idols was great. And here God was going to use the circumstance of a famine to send a message to his people. Now it's also important to note that during the time of the judges, the worship of the Canaanite god Baal was common. Baal was believed to be the owner of the land and the one who controlled fertility. Baal's female counterpart was Ashtoreth. And some people thought, and as crazy as this sounds, that a sexual union between these two gods actually regulated the fertility of the earth and the people on it. So this is how dark they had gotten it from a spiritual standpoint. 
Now, God knows how to get through to anyone at any time. No matter how far they've gone from God, no matter how far they've removed themselves from him, his divine control and his providence and his interaction with the world can do what needs to be done in order to bring judgment so that people will awaken to the reality of who God is. When I look at a lot of things that I see in the world today, I'd want to be cautious because we can't overlay a narrative from the Old Testament and act as though we're prophets and say, this is the judgment of God. But at the same time, we can assess situations that we see and we can find in it principles of judgment and we can certainly affirm that God uses circumstances to get people's attention and when the darkness of trouble comes unexpectedly we should actually expect the unexpected and we should not be surprised even though we often are. The second thought that I want to share is that the darkness of trouble calls for choices. The scripture says, when the famine came, a certain man of Bethlehem left Israel to travel to the country of Moab because of the famine. A famine in the land in this case meant that Israel as a nation was not obedient to the Lord. God specifically promised that there would be plenty in the land if Israel was only obedient. But put yourself in the shoes of this man named Elimelech. If a famine comes that impacts your land and your family, what are you supposed to do? Or certainly, what are you going to do? After all, you've been living in a land uh, and in the area of Bethlehem, which was fertile ground. It said that in Bethlehem, the ground could yield enough for your family in a year under normal circumstances that would have provided more than an abundance of what you needed. After all, Bethlehem is, uh, the word itself means the house of bread. So you know that, but now you're facing a major famine and you're faced with a choice. The choice that he made was to go to the pagan land of Moab. One commentator put it this way. To do so, he had to hike through the desolate Jericho Pass, through the Judean wilderness of the Dead Sea, going across the Jordan River into the land of Moab. This was a definite departure from the promised land of Israel and a return towards the wilderness from which God had delivered Israel hundreds of years before. So he went, and with him went his wife and his two sons. And the scripture says that they went to stay for a while. Now we should not miss the detail of the intent of the time frame of how long they thought they were going to be there. Because evidently they left with the intention to return. But as we all know, our best intentions do not always turn out to be what we thought they were going to be. We can often lay a plan in front of us, and particularly if it's a plan that's the wrong plan, it can turn out to be far longer than we ever intended it for it to be. 
and the circumstances not unfold at all like we thought they would unfold. So what was intended to be a short visit turned into tragedy-filled years. What was a temporary move under duress became a decision that was incredibly important. Now, here's the point I want to make here. Choices have consequences. They either have positive ones or negative ones, but choices that we make always have some sort of counterpart. The name Elimelech means God is king, but it doesn't seem from his decision that that was necessarily so at that time in his life. Now, naturally, he moved his family to Moab because it was a land of good soil and sufficient rainfall. It was only about 50 miles to the east on the other side of the Dead Sea. Moab, which is what is now modern-day Jordan, uh, was a small kingdom. It had ties with Israel all the way back uh, to the time of Abraham. But it had its own leadership, its own laws, its own religion, its own customs, And the events unfolded in such a way that they indicate the decision of the man to take his wife and his sons being an unwise decision, an unwise choice. Because he was not going to be blessed in Moab. Apparently, he was only going to be blessed in Bethlehem. And the problem was that God had been clear that the Israelites were to be very careful about the surrounding nations. They were not to uh, wrap themselves up in the religion of these nations in particular. In Deuteronomy 23 and verse 3 says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, may ever enter the Lord's assembly. Never pursue their welfare or prosperity as long as you live. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 6. Now let's be fair here. I doubt Elimelech intended to leave the Lord by going to Moab. That's not what was on his mind. But that seems to be how it turned out with the consequences that came. Jeff Thomas, uh, the preacher, said the problem in Israel was not the lack of bread. The problem was the lack of obedience to Jehovah. This was not the first famine in the land flowing with milk and honey, and it would not be the last. So here's Elimelech. He thinks he's going to go to Moab. He's just going to stay there until the famine passes, and then he's going to come home. But there ended up being three graves in Moab as he was buried there with his sons, and he never made it back home. The darkness of trouble calls for choices, but be careful of the choices you make in the darkness. Let me say that one more time. The darkness of trouble calls for choices, but be careful of the choices that you make in the darkness. Now, the third thought is this. The darkness of trouble precedes the light of grace. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read some of these stories in the Old Testament, even when I know full well what the end of the story is going to be, I read it and I just feel so just downtrodden. I'm like, goodness gracious, 
these situations that these people get themselves in. And then I think about situations I've gotten myself in. And, and then when you get to the, the heart of it that there's grace, you're reminded of just how good God is and how patient he is with his people. Now, I would say here that random events or seemingly random events are not actually random events. Here's what I mean by that. Who raised up the judges? God did. Who sent the famine? God did. Who gave safe passage to Moab? God did. Who determined that the father and these two sons would die in Moab? God did. And the hand of God is the powerful but unseen hand that by the mystery of his sovereignty and his providence brings about his purposes. And this is where it leads us to a place where greater faith is required. If we served a God whom we could explain away at every turn, He would be a God of our making rather than who he truly is. And there are some things that while they are not necessarily evident on the surface, that we have to make a decision in our lives that we believe that God is working it out for his glory and our good. And he's going to give us grace to see us through. And that's where the foundation of our faith is really solidified. It's in the darkness of trouble where our faith is solidified. If it was always easy, if the decisions were always clearly evident and we never had any obstacles, our faith likely would not grow very much. But it's in these difficulties that we learn to truly trust God. Now, when the family left Bethlehem, There were four of them, mother, father, and two sons. The sons took Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. This, of course, also was less than ideal because the Israelites were not supposed to mix with pagan people. The marriages produced no children here, and then tragedy struck. The father died, about 10 years passed, his sons died. Put yourself in the position of Naomi. She's now buried three men in the mountains of Moab. And it's interesting that Jewish tradition would have regarded their deaths as God's punishment directly for leaving Bethlehem, but the text says nothing of that, so we don't read it in and try to build it beyond what we can clearly see. So Naomi is going to discuss the situation with her now also widowed daughters-in-law, and she's going to declare a little bit further down in a verse that we did not read, essentially that God's hand had turned against her. How did God bring grace, and how would he bring grace? As we conclude verse 5 
in our study this evening, Naomi's still in Moab. She's far from home, both literally and spiritually. She's dealing with the loss of her husband and her sons. She's now an older widow in the company of two younger widows. This was not an ideal situation, to say the least. In fact, it could have seemed hopeless. Somebody said to be a childless widow was to be among the lowest, most disadvantaged classes in the ancient world. There was not one to support you, and you had to live on the generosity of strangers. Naomi had no family in Moab and no one to help her. It was a desperate situation. And as far as she was concerned, not only did she not have a future, but her daughters-in-law would not have a future if they stayed with her either. Now, we know the rest of the story, and we're going to look at the rest of the story as we work our way through this study But Naomi didn't. She didn't know in advance what was going to happen. She didn't know what the end of the whole circumstance was going to be. And yet we're going to find in the middle of this the grace of God that saw her through and also had a greater purpose. And I'll say to you tonight, we don't know what's coming either. But God does. We don't know what's going to unfold in our lives. We don't know what situation we're going to find ourselves in. So what are we left to do? Trust in God and anticipate the grace of God. Here was Naomi who was bruised and brokenhearted, but she still believed. And I think sometimes we find ourselves in the same place, bruised and and brokenhearted, but we still believe. And the reason that we believe is because God is rich in grace. And the God who is rich in grace does not give up on his people. And he is the God who turns sadness to joy when he works in our lives. And it's the darkness of trouble that precedes the light of grace. And I believe that there is hope even in the midst of the darkness of trouble. So I share this with you in closing. First off, the current darkness of trouble is not your permanent destination. The current darkness of trouble is not your permanent destination. Whatever you're dealing with now is not the end of the story. And remind yourself that if you get in a predicament, whether you brought the predicament on yourself or it was just unexpected and it was something to happen because of what was going on around you, that's not the end of the story. That's not it. It may feel like it. And whatever season of difficulty you're dealing with now, it may seem like it's never going to be over. I got good news for you. It'll be over eventually. It'll pass. And in this, the redeeming power of God is your deliverance. It's your deliverance. So look to him. And as we go through this study of the uh, case study of redemption, 
let's remind ourselves of where our hope is. So let me just state by way of review where we've come from tonight and where we've concluded. First off, I said the darkness of trouble comes unexpectedly. It's not unexpected to God, but it's unexpected to us. Secondly, I said the darkness of trouble calls for choices. And you better be careful what choices you make in the midst of the darkness. And then third, the darkness of trouble precedes the light of grace. So no matter how dark it is, the light is going to come on. And God's grace is going to see you through. And then finally, in conclusion, there is hope even in the midst of the darkness of trouble. Your current situation is not your permanent destination. And the redeeming power of God is your deliverance. Let's pray together and I'll make some concluding remarks before we 